Welcome back, everyone, to Inflammatory Content, the podcast all about immunology. I'm your host, Kellen Cavanero. Today, our guest is Dr. David Gonzalez. David is an associate professor at UC San Diego in the pharmacology department of the School of Medicine and the Skag School of Pharmacy. He's also the founder and director of the UCSD Collaborative Center for Multiplexed Proteomics. And his research lab focuses on host-microbe interactions and specializes in proteomics approaches. In our conversation, David and I talk about his journey to becoming a principal investigator. David has faced his fair share of adversity, and his story is super inspirational. We also talk about proteomics, mentorship, and two of his lab's recent publications related to inflammatory bowel disease. You can find links to the articles we discuss, as well as the Gonzalez Lab website in the show notes. So, without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. David Gonzalez. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invite. So, I had a conversation with you before this conversation and you told me a story about quitting science. Can you tell me more about what happened? Yeah, so I think to understand why I quit science, uh, you have to understand that I was trying to do a PhD with two children in elementary school and a wife and basically a family of four on a PhD salary was was tough. It was very difficult. So um, it was really a financial decision um, why I quit. So so <clears throat> so I, I I joined Peter Dorstein's lab, who's still a professor here, and I was his only student for two years. And I would say those two years were very demanding. Being the only student in a assistant professor's lab can be very challenging, I think, for anybody. And knowing my background, where I was very new to science, still, I was only a few years removed from, you know, not doing science. When I was doing my second year of my PhD, it was just too heavy. It was too much. The financial constraints, the demand of the lab, you know, seven days a week demand of the lab. My solution was to go find a job to try to support my family. So this was second year of my PhD. I was still, I would say, pretty novice in the field. And for me at the time, you know, with the financial constraints, it just seemed more, you know, like a good solution to say, hey, I'm out of here. I'm out of UCSD. I'm going to go find a job. I'm tired of having a negative, you know, account balance in my bank. And I knew I had a master's degree already with a program. So I figured I'd just quit and leave. I had a family of four. We lived in a 600 square foot, you know, studio. And it was hard every day walking out to work, watching my, you know, looking at my two boys sleeping on the floor, right? So it would be like my wife and I on one corner sleeping on the floor, our two boys sleeping on another corner. And after, you know, working seven days a week in a lab, especially in an assistant professor's lab who's super demanding, it was hard knowing that I had nothing 
walking out with nothing and then my children were sleeping on the floor. So that was what pushed me to, to, to quit science as a master's student. Mm-hmm. What made you stay? It was because I had a great mentor, right, who didn't let me quit. And I would think a lot of people would maybe say, okay, you know, you can leave, do what you're going to do. But Peter Dorstein was, you know, a good mentor. I would say a great mentor in that aspect where he did everything in his power to keep me here. And, um, yeah, so I, I came back knowing that he believed in me, right, and he thought I can do it, so I came back to finish my Ph.D. If money was such a constraint, why continue in academia with a postdoc after getting your Ph.D.? Yeah, so because I didn't know it any better, that's the honest answer. The honest answer is because I, as a graduate student, Probably wasn't qualified to to be here. At least I didn't know why I was here. So I think most students these days, at least the ones that I encounter in my lab, they come to graduate school and they kind of know why they're here, right? They have a goal. They know what they're doing. But myself was completely different. I, I, I dropped out of high school, right? So I dropped out of high school and I went to work until I was 20. And then I went back to school to the community college. So this is going to be a long-winded way to answer your question. But you have to kind of know the backstory of, of why I did what I did. And, you know, if I wanted to give you a simple answer, it was just because I was naive. I, I, I didn't know what was out there. I didn't even know anything about biotech, right? I mean, I was this kind of, you know, trouble, troubles, troubled kid who decided to leave, you know, the, school, the U.S. school system in really in eighth grade. So I, I think I stepped on campus as a ninth grader like, like a week and I, you know, just left and went to work. When my son was born, when I was 20, I, for some reason, I thought, wow, you know, I need to go to school. It's something clicked at me. There's a kind of a story behind why I did that. But uh, I decided to go to school and still really not knowing why I was in school. It was just really about security. It, al it always comes back to financial security. So I was in school because I figured if I go to school, I'm going to have financial security. Yes, I... I, I declared a religious studies major <laughs> when I went in, right? But I thought at least I'll, I'll make some money. I had, I, had, I had no interest in science at all. I didn't know, really know what, 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 what's, what science was, right? So I went into the you know, community college level as a religious studies major and then started thinking more, of course, about finances and about job security. And that kind of led me into the sciences, right? Um, and then... After that, I kind of just followed the wave. I wouldn't say it was anything about like a goal. It wasn't really anything about like an interest. It was just more about like, oh, I can, I'm, am I, can I apply to this program? Yeah. To the STEM program? Sure. Okay. Oh, I got it. Cool. They're going to give me some money, right? It was really about financial stability and trying to kind of, that was always my driver, right? Because I didn't come from really from anything was living in a 600-square-foot loft with my, my family of four. It was always financially driven scenario. So, so why did I stay in academia uh, if, it, it's, if it's always been financially kind of driven? I think it's because I did catch the science bug. So I did catch something where once I started becoming more and more involved into my PhD, once I started kind of 
somewhat understanding what I was doing in the lab, I started seeing more the big picture of what this world is, how much unknowns there are, uh, how many cool technologies are coming up that we can do new things and look at things differently in this world. And that's kind of what kept me in academia and, and, and really that freedom to, to um, you know, explore any question you want. I've always been you know, kind of thrilled by that, enthused by that. And second, because I did have such great mentors, you know, with Peter Dorstein, with Victor Nazette, with Jack Dixon. I mean, I was really blessed to be around really not only great scientists, but good men that I always thought, wow, I really want to return that favor. That's the kind of person I am. If someone gives me something, I always try to like return it back in some way or another. And a part of the reason why I stayed in academia is my passion towards mentoring students, right? Mentoring students, but not only in the science part, but also in the what I call life part, kind of the professionalism. You know, for me as, as, as a scientist, it's just as important to publish in the science and nature paper as right, how you treat somebody. And these are the two kind of principles that I, that, I, that I was taught, right, with, you know, Victor, Jack, and Peter, which is, you know, amazing science, but also be a professional in the way you treat people. And that's something that I always thought, wow, I, I want to return that, and I want to build scientists that are not only great thinkers, but also great individuals. And, and that's, that's why I stayed in academia. You have a large proportion of students in your lab. I, I looked on your website and six out of eight people are either masters or PhD students. Is that by design? Yeah. So for me, it's not that I've had bad experiences with postdocs. It's just that I've been a postdoc myself. And, and, and even though postdocs are much more skilled than graduate students, they're also less malleable than graduate students. They have one foot out the door. And it's really hard, I think, to build something around that. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's much stronger and I think much more uh, lasting if you do that around graduate students. Because graduate students, if they become the foundation of your lab, I feel like that's a stronger foundation than it, if it would be a lot of postdocs. You know, maybe that foundation might be stronger if it was a bunch of research scientists who were like committed to you, to stay with you, but th that's rare these days. Um, but I think, you know, having a graduate student a good five years, um, you can do a lot, a lot with that. Especially if you put your time into training them, putting your time into training them, not only, like I said, not only scientifically, but also mannerisms and professionalism, you can have a very strong, loyal foundation to your lab. And I think that's a big reason, at least, why my lab was, was, was um, successful. My first team um, was, was, you know, not only great scientists, like one of my students won Thesis of the Year Award, right? But I would put my name on the line that they were also good people, good individuals. And I think that's what I want to build my lab foundation on. on people are going to be in my lab, not looking, you know, as soon as they walk into the lab, not looking to leave, right? More looking to learn and to grow and to become a better scientist and a better person. I just feel like that is the great foundation to build a lab. Do you have other philosophies around building your lab or how to run it that maybe are different than most other people? 
So I, I would say that, that my lab is 1,000% based on if you cut like Peter Dorsey in half and you cut Victor and Jack in half and put them together, that's my lab. So my lab is built on, you know, work ethic. I, I you know, I, I guess I can go back when I interview people. So, so I just interviewed a few people for positions. And, you know, when you interview people, it's always funny because they always bring their CV and, you know, they'll really try to highlight, you know, the things that they do know and how they're going to contribute. I think people are always thrown back when I interview them because I really want to know, first of all, like what's in here. And I point out my chest and my heart and some people kind of get it. Some people don't. And they're like, what is this guy talking about? And I tell them, like, look, it, I didn't even read your CV. I care more what type of person you are. And that's what I want to know. So you and I need to talk. You and I need to have some long discussions before I consider hiring you about who are you? Who is Kellen? Right? What type of person are you? Right? If you face a challenge, what do you what what will you do? Will you run? Will you you know, will you face the challenge? I don't know what other PIs do in their lab, but I certainly my first approach or my first move when I anybody I've ever hired, you know, PhD student to, to staff scientist to postdoc the first discussion that we have and the first thing I try to dig into is trying to figure out what type of individual this person is. And I use that, you know, I, I've had grad students in the past because it's, that's just a very hard thing to figure out about people, right? There's, it's very hard to figure out what type of person they are, right? So in, a meet, in one meeting or two, right? So it, you need some time to do that. So even students that I've rotated in my lab, I make sure that I push those students to a point where it might be a little aggressive or, or per, per, you know, perceived as aggressive, but I want to push them to a point where I feel that they're going to encounter that they're going to encounter that during their PhD. So I try to push them at that point. And if some, you know, some people have stayed, some people have ran, right? But, but I think it's really towards a goal of saying, who are you? What type of person are you? How do you respond to pressure? Um, you know, are you a good, a good hearted person? Are you not? Right. I mean, th these are the the first thing that I always talk to people about when I hire them, just trying to figure out who they are and get to know them. And I don't and maybe other professors do that. Maybe they don't. But for me, even more than science, even more than anything that, you know, I want to know that, you know, you're a genuine, you know, stand up person. And if you are, I'll t I don't care what you know. I will train you. I will help you. I will teach you. I'll be committed to you. But as long as I feel like and I know that this is a good person that I can invest in. If you could give maybe a sentence of advice to a current PhD student who wants to continue in academia, you know, what what's like the main thing that you tell people that you think all people should know, all all trainees should know? So there's two parts. I, I always say, in terms of science, I say you need to have a sense of urgency. You know, we can have great technology, we can have great ideas, but we also need to have this sense of urgency that things need to push forward, right? Things need to, because you know this, we are in a field of no's, we're in a field of experiments not working, right? So. I would tell someone from a science side, you know, keep pushing forward, but push forward with a sense of urgency and at the same time rigor, you know, be rigorous, but have that sense of urgency when you come to lab every day. On the other side, on the professional side, 
I always talk to my students about this. I always ask them, what do you think is more important, the science or the relationship with other people around you? And, I, and you know, I've had kind of gone back. I think they're 1A and 1B, and I don't know which is more important, but I would say relationships with people, this is what, that's the field we're in. And especially how science is moving these days. You really don't do things in a silo no more. It's like a team-based science these days. It's really about relationships. It's really about how you interact with people, um, how you approach people. I think this is just as important as the science, the type of relationships that you build uh, during, your, during your career and during your, your path in, in science. Just as important, I think. In terms of team science, something that is very obvious from looking at your CV is that you're a great collaborator always collaborating with many different investigators in many different fields. How do you be a good collaborator? So I think for me, it's simple. Whenever I go into a collaboration, I always tell the other professor or the whoever interacts with me is that I asked, I asked the other individual, what, what's your opinion about good business? Like if, if you, if you were going to write this down, if someone was going to say, Describe good business in one sentence. What would you say? And you know, I give you different answers, right? But, but my answer is that it needs to be 50-50, right? You need to have an, a, a collaborator, a good business is, I'm giving you my all, but guess what? You're giving me your all, and that's going to be harmonic, right? So how do, what do I, that's kind of what sets the stage, right? Like, look, I'm willing to give you, every, meet you halfway, meet me halfway, beautiful. That's kind of what I establish, but what I give is something more. I always try to give my collaborators or anybody that I work for more than what they would expect. I think that's such a good um, you know, formula because when you, have, when you make the expectation like X, but you go above and you give them Y, they're always gonna be happy, right? They're always gonna be like, wow, this, you know, this, this person's a giver. So I guess if, if we're gonna simplify it, I've always tried to be a giver in any relationship right um it's particular in science so if someone comes to me a clinician or like a basic scientist i try to wow them every time and i, and I still feel this way seven years into my job it i i i find it personally gratifying when it's when a colleague or someone emails me and says wow i've never gotten something like this before and and, and that's really what my goal is just to wow people to wow collaborators uh, while, you know, anybody that works in my lab, give them more than what they think they're going to get. There's only so many hours in the day. How do you prioritize like your lab's specific work versus collaborators? Do you s say no to people? I, I don't think I've said no um, to people, but I, but I'm realistic about what is, you know, if we're talking about like a service that we give in the lab, I'm pretty realistic about timetables and things of this nature. Um, but the way the lab is set up right now, it's, there's no, I don't see a disconnect between like my lab, a collaborator's lab. I kind of see it more as a UCSD hub. Like I really view this as, this is a UCSD kind of dynamic uh, um, um, team that it doesn't just involve my lab, but it involves my whole department, pharmacology. It involves, f you know, the pharmacy school where I also have an appointment. And anybody else around here, it's more about 
science. So maybe I don't see divisions between labs and schools or departments. I see it more as a big kind of holistic UCSD team, which I feel that I want to try to push forward. So I don't view me working with X or Y clinician as a collaborator. I see it as UCSD as a whole is pushing forward. That's kind of how, how, I, how I move. Mm -hmm. But I am conscious with my students. <laughs> you know, I, I am aware of, of the students and I do, I would say I do try to prioritize and make sure that my students are benefiting from every interaction. Um, you know, my, my students are not only, uh, you know, things, tangible things like, you know, publications and grants, but also intellectually that they're something, that part of that relationship with another lab or that collaboration, it always has to be directed to improving my students, you know, the way they think, improving my students in terms of productivity and things of this nature. So, so even though I do see and view UCSD as this, you know, family, this big team, I am conscious of those people that are closest to me, to my, you know, my graduate students, my postdocs and staff scientists, to try to promote them and promote their career. I mean, I think any student or anybody that's gone through my lab, they'll tell you that, you know, the things that I tell them is that, you know, my job, I really feel, and this really comes from my, the way I was mentored, my job is to make sure that you're successful. I, that's, I tell every student that. So you, we need to have an open relationship. We need to have a good communication because I need to understand what you're looking for. If I don't understand what you want or what you need or what your needs are, it's going to be really hard for me to fulfill that. But if we have a good relationship, we have an open relationship, we can discuss things and you feel safe, I feel safe, then I can guide you to that place because that's absolutely why I feel I'm here at UCSD. This is the mentor side coming out of me. Mm -hmm. I am here to help anybody that comes to my lab get to where they want to be. As long as I understand where that place is, I will do anything in my power to, to, to get them there. And I tell them, you know, this is a lifelong commitment. Like I always tell students, I, I'm not committing for you to your PhD. I'm not committing to you for a few years or whatever. I'm committing to you for the rest of your life. I will be here for you in any way, any capacity you need me to help you, I will try to help you. What do you think is bad advice that people get often that maybe they should ignore? As, as a trainee. So I was on the committee, like the, bio, the BMS committee for many years, like four years. And at the same time, I was also the uh, diversity coordinator, the URM, underrepresented minority coordinator. And what I saw was, and I don't know if it's bad advice that they got, but what I see typically students go after kind of big name labs, right? Um, as a PhD student, the, the f kind of the first move for most people will be, I want to go to this kind of big name lab. That works for some people, right? What, 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 what I think is, is good, you need to go to a lab, and it's all, this is all subjective, right? It depends on who, because I'm, I'm probably relating back to my, to my experience, someone that didn't have any experience coming in, right? So I view all students like that. I kind of say, like, okay, well, this student has never gone through a PhD program, right? So they, how do they, how much do they really know about what it is type of deal? But, but I would say, I don't know if it's bad advice, but I would say probably a good move would be is to go to join, don't join a lab based on someone's name. I would say join a lab based on if you're going to get fulfilled of what you're looking for, or if you're going to receive what you're, what you need. And that's hard because everybody's different, right? But you should, I think every PhD student before coming in, 
when they're rotating, when they're considering which lab to, what lab to, to join, they should ask, my, ask themselves, not like how many papers this guy's published, right? Or where he's publishing. It should be, am I gonna become the scientist? Is this person gonna help me become the scientist that I wanna be? And is that person invested in doing that? And I think that's, you know, 100%, um, you know, you know, needed, right, for a PhD student. I would say for most PhD students, of course, you have your outliers of people that are, you know, ready to go when they're here. But for the majority of the people that fall under that bell-shaped curve, they need to find a mentor that's going to be there for them. That's, I mean, what, what does mentor mean, right, the word itself? Someone that's going to mentor them, right? And I think if that student falls in and, and, and really searches and looks for that and they can find that, I think they're going to have a higher chance of being in successful. They're going to have a higher chance of becoming that scientist they came to, to UCSD to become or to any grad school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I always tell, like, when I, I remember when I interview people, I always tell people, what do you think the biggest indicator of success in graduate school is? In my opinion, it's your mentor. It's like, who do you, who did you decide to be with? And who did you decide to guide you? Who did you decide to work with, have this partnership with, this collaboration with? Is it someone that's going to, you know, sit back and watch you row the boat? Or is it going to be somebody that's going to grab, you know, and help you, you know, paddle that, that you know, grab a paddle and help you swim, you know, move that boat forward, right? And you got to ask yourself, right? Every individual is different. You have to ask yourself, what type of person am I, right? Am I a person that needs mentorship? Or am I a person that just needs space and funding, and I'll and I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And in my from my experience here, at least at UCSD, I would say most students fall on this side where they really need help and they need mentorship. They need to understand what it is to do great science, but also understand what it is to be, you know, a professional individual because that's the field that we're go- going mm-hmm. into, right? So, you know. Make sure you vet your, <laughs> your, your mentors, right? Make sure that you get a good feel of who that person is. Make sure you get a good feel of, you know, is this person going to help? If that's the type of person you are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say the, the majority of, of, of the people that come into these programs need to be mentored, need to be shown what this field's about, need to be shown how you can publish, you know, in, in you know, good journals, how you can publish in great journals, Right. And at the same time, how to work with all these different types of personalities and individuals that you're going to encounter, right, during your time. So, so yeah, no. And then as that progresses, of course, yeah, as you know, th- I'm, I'm talking about PhD. And, of course, as a postdoc, um, it's a different. Of course, you want to spread those wings, um, but the typical person, right? You want to spread those wings. You want to have independence. This is exactly how my, my career, I mean, I had a very, like, I would say, I'm not going to say micromanaging PhD, but I would say, I had, I certainly would have micromanaged me. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I was trying to, you know, work with these million dollar instruments that I've never touched in my whole life, never saw in my whole life. So I needed someone to sit there with me, right, and tell me and teach me how to use this. And and I had that. That's the experience I had as, as, as a PhD student. I had a very, you know, tightly regulated PhD. It did change kind of, you know, when I was year five, four, it was a bit, little bit more freedom. But those first three, three and a half years, were very tightly regulated because that's what I, I needed. And then when I did a postdoc, I certainly looked for something that was more freedom, right? Someone that was going to you know, give me more space to explore what I wanted to do intellectually. But, um, 
yeah, that's kind of how things went down. Another aspect of your career trajectory that is interesting to me is that you grew up in San Diego. I grew up in San Diego. You did your PhD in San Diego. I'm doing my PhD in San Diego. And then you stayed here since, right? And I couldn't imagine a better way for things to go would be to stay here for the rest of my career. There's seems to be a stigma against staying in the same place. Do you think, I mean, obviously it's worked out very well for you. You've established a great little niche here, or big niche. What do you think about staying in the same place? I see why it could be problematic. I mean, if there's additional challenges in staying in the same place, I would say mostly tied to your independence. So if you were trained here as a PhD, and if you were trained here as a postdoc as what I did, I think it's much more challenging to kind of disconnect yourself from your PhD and your postdoc mentors. But that's kind of what's traditionally viewed as being the downside, you know, have, having this kind of tough time to become an independent investigator. But I think over the last few years, I've been seeing that there's actually a lot of positives, a lot of, I mean, the reason why my lab and the technology that's in my lab right now is 1,000% a result of me being here so long. So I got here in 2006, started my PhD, finished in 2011, did a postdoc till 2014. That gave me, what, seven, eight years to really evaluate the campus. So these are things that people, someone from outside wouldn't have this, right? It would take them like maybe a decade to figure this out. But I had nearly a decade to figure out what are the strengths of UCSD? What are the weaknesses in terms of my field, right? What, what are the strengths of UCSD? What are the weaknesses? Wh wh what is needed here? How can I transform this place? So I had an intimate knowledge of the campus. I had an intimate knowledge of probably over you know, 30 labs that, uh, that I worked with. I knew what they can do. I knew what they couldn't do. I knew what they wanted. And when I started my lab with that intimate knowledge, I that was goal number one. I'm going to bring the technology to this campus that nobody has that is needed in this campus. So I used, you know, doing my PhD here and my postdoc here in a, in a positive way, I would say. You know, I, I used it as an advantage, uh, it, you know, to be here as a professor because I knew exactly what was going to work and what wasn't going to work because of the time that I stayed here prior. But I do see the 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 value of bringing new people new talent in um i i do see the downside of like if i was trained i mean they already have it right like the, they already have the the knowledge that i gained from my phd mentor ucsu already had the knowledge that i gained from my postdoc mentors so i do see like why would they hire hire somebody like that right uh, if they already have that so this doesn't this does not doesn't even sound like a good business move right it just sounds like okay so you know the the traditional route is to say hey let's bring out some outside talent Let's bring out some new kind of, you know, experience and, and, and expertise that we don't currently have on campus to grow, to grow the university. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is like, is there someone that's been here in the trenches, really looked at the infrastructure of this school of medicine, and not just the school of medicine, because I did my PhD in the chem biochem, which is on main campus. So I really had an intimate knowledge of all the way from, you know, Ravel College, 
all the way down to the School of Medicine. I knew the big players. I kind of knew where the science was going. And that really helped me formulate a plan to say, look, it, I'm going to make myself an important player because I'm going to bring this piece here that nobody has. So people listening may not be most versed in proteomics. I definitely am not. Could you give us just a brief kind of synopsis of, of what maybe your proposal to the university was? What was this instrument for? What could it do that others couldn't? Yeah. So first of all, back in 2014, when I was starting to negotiate my contract here, um, you know, talking about dollars, my whole sell to the university was there is a quantitative proteomics platform that has really revolutionized the way we can do do this type of science. And this platform exists at Harvard. We need to bring, I'm going to bring that platform here. Question was why? We, you know, we have, we have a bio core over here, right? We have a mass spec core. Uh, we, you know, we have, Peter has like 12 instruments over here in the School of Pharmacy, right? But I, you know, there's different levels, right? And, 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 of, you know, and different types of approaches for proteomics. And my, my thought was, yes, we have some mass spectrometry, you know, pla actually we have like 30 on campus. I wrote a grant on, on an instrument. You have to, do, you know, disclose all the different cores that we have on campus here. We literally have almost like 30 mass spec facilities or like wow. programs here. A lot of them aren't like functional anymore, right? But they're still like on paper, they, they're still active. But what 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 this instrument really did so so i guess proteomics in itself if you think about proteomics you know you think about the central dogma molecular biology right dna goes to rna goes to protein and proteins make metabolites so so on campus uh we didn't have really a great proteomics type of technology here to really dig into that level of the of the central dogma at a level where I felt was cutting edge or at a level where the technology was at that certain certain time. So typically you hear about people like sequencing, you know, DNA or sequencing RNA, right? To try to get some something information about the protein level. Whereas in my mind, I thought, wow, hold up. You know, I can probably argue and say that the greatest technological advancements in the last 10, 20 years have been at the proteomic level, we can go in and actually look at these things directly. We don't have to infer them from like genomic sequencing, right? We can go and directly probe the proteins themselves. We just didn't have that technology here to do that. We had great sequencing technologies here and those technologies even, you know, exponentially went up higher with, you know, Rob and these other people that are sequencing a lot of organisms, but we didn't have a bona fide quantitative large scale multiplexing proteomics platform on campus. And that to you know to directly probe the proteome right without inferring you know genomically what, what is happening so the beautiful thing about proteomics um and there's, there's limitations to it and we can talk about the limitations but one of the really you know informative things about it is that you can directly probe a protein you can directly quantify that protein and then you can see how that protein is modified and in terms of biology modifications we're starting to learn, you know, post-translational modifications really are guiding the biology. Is it a protein active? Does it get phosphorylated? Does it need does it need methylation? There's a, I mean, a protein gets degraded. Does it get ubiquitinated, right? So all these post-translational modifications are so important 
And this is the stuff that was missing here on campus. This is why I felt like we needed to bring a technology that you can directly probe the protein and get you information that you'll never get by sequencing, you know, the genome or, you know, looking at transcripts. You, I mean, it's going to be hard for you to predict how that protein is modified. And, you know, if you, if you study a protein, right, you can go your whole life potentially studying the wrong protein, right? It, that protein might not even be the active player, the one that's actually doing the biology. It might be a different proteoform, right? It might need to be phosphorylated or something like glycosylation. So you'll be doing your assays and studying this one protein. And at the very end, you're going to figure out that, hey, guess what? It needed, you know, this post-translational modification for it actually to do its function. And maybe that's why everything failed, right? So it really gives you another perspective proteomics, it gives you another perspective to the central dogma. And I don't know if you remember biochemistry class, but I remember my first biochemistry class, my teacher telling me, students, the functional unit of the cell is what? Proteins, right? Proteins are the functional unit of the cell. So proteomics allows you to directly probe the functional unit of the cell, to directly quantify the functional unit of the cell and also to get a next level information in terms of how is that protein modified? Because proteins are not like DNA, right? They're, they're very, they're not static in the nucleus. They're very dynamic and they interact with other proteins and those interactions have some biological consequence, right? So, so I think at the time I knew, I was full-heartedly knew because I did my PhD here, because I did my postdoc here, that we didn't have that technology like the most contemporary technology to do that, to directly probe the proteome, to directly quantify the proteome, and to start looking at PTMs of these proteins. So what sort of use cases is your lab uh, leveraging this technology for currently? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I just gave a talk uh, to the gastroenterology group. And when he introduced me, uh, one of the professor here, he said, I was researching David's you know, looking at his research plan, and I can say this, he's everywhere. He puts his hands everywhere and does everything. And I think, you know, that can be negative. That can be a negative. That can be a positive, right? Um, you know, it can be a jack of all trades, but master of none t type of deal, right? But, but, but I think that um, technology, it just almost organically turns into something that you have to have your hands everywhere, because it almost seems like every single experiment we do, we find something completely novel, something completely that we didn't know before. And I think if you have, and I remember I, I always use this line because when I interviewed at UC Irvine, the guy said, wow, you have a golden hammer. So when you have a golden hammer in your lab, right, you want to make sure that you're hitting as many different nails as you can as possible because you really can transform that field. And I think... You know, for me, I started off in infectious diseases. That was my, you know, I, I was trained, you know, formally in infectious diseases with Dr. Nazette, with Victor Nazette. You know, studied staph, aureus, and strep a lot. And that was my first kind of walk and, 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 and kind of move in terms of using this technology was to study these pathogens. And now, you know, we're a patent in, right, for a vaccine antigen against strep. Um, you know, we've, we've published high-impact papers like in Cell, right, looking at Staph aureus and trying to predict 
who's going to live, who's going to die when you have staff in your blood. And this is all because of this golden hammer, like this golden technology that allows you to go in and probe with high fidelity these proteins. Right? The proteins are the functional unit of the cell, right? So uh, I think that was been successful in terms of infectious disease. But now we have, and I'm really, like, if you look where I'm at, I'm in the School of Medicine, right? So I'm in the School of Medicine surrounded by a bunch of clinicians. And I always tell people I'm a clinician's best friend, right? Because they can collect the samples all they want. But at the very end, they need to send their samples somewhere. And they need someone to analyze their samples. You know, and, and, and you know, I've been fortunate enough for them that they found me, right? That they, you know, I, I got them to believe in the technology, that there is, there is value in looking at the proteins directly. There is value in that. And I think that's what's made the lab very widespread, where people see, you know, they kind of sequence their hypothesis to death, right? And nothing really comes to be. And then they, they, they do this experiment, the protein, but and it, it almost sounds not silly. I'm not going to say silly, but it sounds, you know, it sounds correct, right? If I said, hey, I really want to know which, who Kellen is, but I'm not going to talk to Kellen. I'm going to talk to like your third cousin mm -hmm. and try to figure out who Kellen is. And then I come back to you and I say, well, okay, I, I think I know something about Kellen. I talked to his, you know, third cousin. And then I said, you know, I think I want to know Kellen a little better. So I'm going to talk to his, you know, second cousin, right? So then I start to talk to your second cousin. And I get to know a little bit more about you. Maybe they know you a little bit more. They're closer to you. And then I come back and I say, wow, I, I really know Kellen a lot better. But guess what? I really, really want to know Kellen. So I'm going to go talk to Kellen directly. And then I get a whole completely different story. And then I really get to know who Kellen is because it came from the horse's mouth, right? You told me who you are. I got to see you directly. And that's the same thing with the proteomics. We can directly go to the proteomics. We directly probe the proteomics. We directly ask the questions to the, prote to the proteins. And that has been so valuable for many researchers on campus. I mean, I think we've collaborated over like probably over 100 labs now, by now, across this campus, across, you know, neighboring academic institutes. And I think it's because, again, because there is a value in directly probing the proteome. There, there is a tremendous value in that. And it's still a frontier in many fields. It's still a frontier to go in and say, hey, I want to study this protein, at least on a system scale. I mean, people have been doing proteomics on a very singular scale for a lot of years now, right? Like they study their one protein, right? But on a system scale, it's still... Um, a frontier, I would say, in many fields to go in and do systems biology and go in and probe a biological question unbiasedly, really letting the data tell you what you should be doing, right? Versus some, you know, hypothesis that you had beforehand. So I, I, th I think um, why we've been so spread, why we've touched so many labs is because we do have that golden hammer. That golden hammer is real. And again, there's a lot of value in the information that you get when you go directly to a protein and, and probe it. So you mentioned giving a talk with gastroenterology department and one of the inspirations for wanting to talk to you is not just to hear your story, but because I've seen some of the recent uh, papers that came out of your lab, um, specifically focused on inflammatory bowel disease. And I noticed you had another one come out like just yesterday i think right yeah. um so the first one was just a impressive amount of data you did every omics i could name in that paper how do you analyze that 
Do you have a background in statistics like, or do you rely on your grad students to kind of figure that stuff out? Can you name the different omics that went into that? Yeah. So we did 16S. We did meta, shotgun metagenomics. We did serum proteomics. We did stool metaproteomics. And we did metapeptidomics. And finally, we did metabolomics. So how do we handle all that? It's, again, it's a team, you know, collaborative effort where, yes, we do rely on, for example, like I'm not really familiar with what Rob Knight's doing in his lab. Rob Knight was a, uh, on that paper too. So I'm, I'm not 100%. I mean, I'm f aware of what he does, obviously. I see his data. I, I have, a, I think, a working knowledge, but I'm certainly not an expert of what he does. So when it comes to like the metagenomes and the 16S, we rely on our collaborators. But I do it in a way where the students learn. So yes, it does fall back on the student or the postdoc who's working, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an agreement between the labs that this student will be trained, right, to properly handle this data. Um, it'll, it, it's, it's an agreement that these students will get, like, again, like support and things of this nature. For the metabolomics, you know, it's mass spectrometry based stuff. So we're pretty, you know, um, we have a good handle on all the, you know, so for the serum proteomics, we had a good handle on. For the stool proteomics, we had a good handle on. For the peptidomics, metapeptidomics, that a lot of those workflows I, I built as a, as a student and I brought them into my lab. So looking at endogenous peptides, there's a lot of value in that and people don't look at that that much. Um, and yeah, and, and, and so I would say all mass spectrometry based stuff, I think we have a good handle in the lab. We, we, you know, the student that came to my lab, they wanted to do learn proteomics. They wanted to learn how to do, you know, processing the data, preparing. We got that easy. I mean, we, we, we've been doing it for, you know, a lot, a lot of years now. But doing more kind of, you know, the sequencing and then things at the DNA or the RNA level, we do, you know, depend and rely on our collaborators to, to support us on something, on something like that. Um, but I, I, would, I will say that we are learning. We are learning how to use all these programs and, and things like that. I think the big challenge is at the end is how do you integrate all these things? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's still a, you know, there's certain things that you see in papers and people give it a good shot, but it's still, I think, you know, a frontier in terms of how do you maximize the integration of all this data, you know, to some, you know, to get something useful out of it. And I would say we try, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of manual, like, you know, comparisons and things like this, but I think people are working on, you know, programs to do something like this in a more high throughput, put fashion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that first paper, you basically do all of this omics, right? As like a hypothesis generator and you boil it down into finding something that associates with patients with ulcerative colitis. And that is this microbe uh, bevel goddess, right? And so the paper is structured in such a way where you're doing all of this omics that, that basically point you to this one thing, and then you have some nice mechanistic work showing that that, that, that thing actually does um, matter and, and that it, it's producing uh, peptides that are causing disease, right? And you can inhibit the peptides with a protease inhibitor, right? And that can treat the mice. And I'm wondering, has anything come of that since since that report? 
in terms of treatment of patients with inflammatory bowel disease? Is, is this being explored, these, these protease inhibitors, maybe specific protease inhibitors for this B. vulgatus? Yeah, so, so not yet. So as you know, science sometimes walks and, you know, slow, and sometimes science, well, I wouldn't say sometimes, science is always guided by funds, right? So, so let, I'll take a step back and, and I'll tell you. So when we started that project, this paper with uh, Mills, Robert Mills, who was a BMS student, awesome student, we sat down in my office one day and we said, okay, you're jointly mentored by myself and Rob Knight. So we, we, we co-mentored him. And we want to study the microbiome. And, you know, very, like, first step questions. And we said, okay, well, what do we want? Do we want to study the skin microbiome? Do we want to study, you know, the gut microbiome? So w where do we want to go with this, Robert, right? So he came back and he said, look at, uh, I feel like if we did the skin microbiome, there's technical hurdles on the mass spec side that we would still need to overcome. So the paper wouldn't even be about biology of the skin microbiome. It would be more about building technical uh, like work workflows or technical protocols to even do those experiments because you know there's going to be so much host keratin and there's things that are going to swamp the signal things that we like technical hurdles that we didn't have yet protocols that we didn't have yet so we said okay let's shift to the gut what can we do in the gut okay well in the, in terms of the, the skin either like how would you even pick up microbial like proteins in the host background that was the biggest hurdle for for, for doing so we said okay well what if we did this you know the gut well, hold up. Why don't we do a small pilot experiment on, you know, the gut? And, you know, we did biopsies. Um, we did stool. Uh, we did, you know, what else did we do? Like, you know, I forgot, like, like swabs or something. You know, we did a bunch of different things to say, can we actually even study the gut? And what's the best way of studying it? And we found out with, like, swabs, it was all host proteins. But there was really no microbial background, maybe limited, Right. Um, you know, we went in, we did, you know, I think urine and you know, certainly just all like couple proteins, right? Nothing microbial. So it wasn't really going to give us like microbiome information. And then we did the stool and this is when I was thrown back. I was like, wow, because I, I, I really have done like I've done in my career and I've done like primary cell lines. I've done like organs. I've done proteomics. I'm nearly, you know, you name it. I've probably done proteomics of it. Um, but I had never done stool. And, and when I got the data back from Robert, we were so blown away that, you know, any other host tissue, human tissue, it's going to be, I would say, 90% or higher host proteins, probably like 99% host proteins. When we did the stool, I was so surprised that it was not flipped, but I would say it was like 80% microbial, you know, reads to like 20% host. So that I, I knew we had something there. I was like, okay. I think we can study the gut microbiome, Robert, if we got stool, right? We need to get stool. So at this time, you know, Rob had just gotten here, and then, you know, Peter was starting to build a bunch of metabolomics, you know, uh, protocols for the gut, stool proteomics, or stool metabolomics. So I really felt like, okay, I want to hit this out of the park. Like I want, I, uh, omics-wise, and, and, and I felt like, the one thing that UCSD has happening right now is not only do we have like great omics people here, like people that are really pushing the boundaries of the omics, but I also felt like the right individuals were there. 
people that were like great collaborators, people that were, you know, trying to push the frontiers of their respective fields. And that's how it started. That, that was the project. The project was, we're going to take stool, we're going to take match serum, and we're going to monitor the gut, some gut disease, uh, you know, some people that have gut dysbiosis. And then we picked inflammatory bowel disease. Okay, there's another level of complexity there. So when you think about inflammatory bowel disease, there's either two subtypes, right? There's Crohn's disease, which can be anywhere along the GI tract. It can occur anywhere. And ulcerative colitis, which is restricted to the colon. So we, we were really thinking about this more as like biochemists and thinking, okay, well, why don't we just do ulcerative colitis to start? Because if we do ulcerative colitis to start, at least it's located only in one region. So the biology of the biochemistry should be not as variable as if like if we took, you know, something from the colon or something from the ileum. And, you know, so we, we that might vary much more than, you know, taking a disease that's just located in one region of the GI tract. Right. So that, that's kind of how that project started. Uh, we, we, we dwindled it down to what we wanted to study, the question we wanted to look at, the people we wanted to work with. Right. And then we hit it. Yeah. Like you said, with ev like every probably every single omic that, you know, at least that we have readily available around us right here on UCSD. Um, and, and, and yeah. And, and, and we, you know, sequenced the heck out of these little samples. We did the proteomics. And I think what, what we wanted to do was, and, and that was kind of the second goal, was we wanted to get a hypothesis that had compounding evidence, right? Because we figured, why did we do all these omics, right? Well, the reason why we did them is because we would love to have a hypothesis that every single one of these omics points towards and says, this is what's potentially happening. You should potentially test this. And that's exactly kind of what happened. You know, we had our lead from the meta proteomics. It told us it was B. vulgatus or potentially we started looking at the peptides like the endogenous peptides we started seeing those people those patients who had high severity ulcerative colitis had more proteolysis or more dipeptides occurring we started looking at the serum of those patients we saw that they had a much elevated at least the people that had high severity had much elevated protease inhibitors in their blood so it was it really i think worked exactly like we wanted it to work Obviously, there's probably way more hypotheses there, right? We only tested one, but there's many more that we can test. And that's why I think it's also, it's not only a, a, was a cool paper in terms of the findings, but it's also, I think, a very one-of-a-kind resource. I don't know of any other, you know, clinical, right, uh, patient uh, specimens that have been extensively looked at from all these different omic perspectives. The more recent paper is related to the other inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing in full because, like I said, I, I just noticed it last last night, I believe. But it seems like kind of doing a similar sort of take on it, you know, doing a lot of omics from an unbiased sort of perspective to start and then and then narrowing in. Is, is that sort of the same approach you took w with that? Yeah, so that paper is um, really trying to get the m most out of our data. So that's the same, actually the same data set. We wanted to keep the first paper as something very like direct, a story that went from, here's this hypothesis, we're gonna take this hypothesis in vitro, and then we're gonna take this hypothesis in vivo. So it was like really one finding. And we knew that we still had all this other data. And in the first paper, we only looked at ulcerative colitis 
but we also ran Crohn's patients, right? So we went in and we started looking and saying, like, what are these very specific signatures, depending on where you have your disease, because we had, you know, we know the location of where it was happening in the GI tract. So depending on what type of Crohn's you have, because that also itself has subtypes, um, what type of signatures uh, would we see? And are they discriminative in terms of, can we say these signatures occur here? And it's really, you know, going towards potential biomarker. We wanted to take the first steps to at least to get distinguishing or discriminating molecular signatures to say, if you have Crohn's here or like in the ileum versus like in the colon or versus, you know, higher up in the GI tract, could we predict that? using the molecular signatures so 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 that paper that came out last night or the day before is really moving towards and and you know having long discussions with gi you know, gastroenterology doctors where their holy grail is to find a non-invasive biomarker potentially through stool that allows them to say this person has crohn's disease and this type of crohn's or this person has ulcerative colitis so a biomarker is really a holy grail for for their field because of course nobody wants to go in and do it right endoscopic or you know colonoscopy and you know if you can you know have some type of predictor in your stool to tell you what you have you know and not having to go under getting a colonoscopy people would i think would appreciate that mm -hmm. that's why you that's why it's it's really hard also for that reason it's hard to study this question because how do you get in terms of experimental design right how do you get healthy people People that are healthy don't go in for like biopsies, right? You know, the, you only go when you, you know, you feel sick or something like this, right? So, so I think I've talked to maybe like over a hundred gastroenterologists now, clin doctors, MDs, clinicians, and I think every single one of them that I've talked to always circles back and says, "Wow, wouldn't it be great if we had a bio non-invasive biomarker to tell us, you know, if this patient either has Crohn's, this patient has ulcerative colitis." And if this patient has Crohn's, what type of Crohn's do they have? I can see utility even beyond the gut because so many diseases have been correlated to microbiome findings through 16S. Those technologies may have not been able to provide specific biomarkers or identify specific potential therapeutics, but maybe the proteomics approach would. So are you investing any energy into these other diseases of, of distal tissues to see if you can kind of like these two papers identify potential therapeutic targets and also potential biomarkers for diagnostics as well? Yeah, yeah. No, we're definitely expanding out. If I'm understanding your question, are, are we expanding out to other diseases? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, I would say the lab is our experts at looking at, you know, blood, analyzing blood, clinical sample, patient blood samples. We're experts at looking at, you know, stool also from patients. And that can be used and, you know, looked at in the context of any, really any disease, right? So, you know, you hear the microbiome and you hear, I just heard a few talks the other day and I would say association, right? like compositional asso associations everywhere. Um, I mean, I think I saw a slide that had like 40 different diseases and, you know, people had done 16S sequencing or done maybe shotgun metagenomics and they've seen some type of correlation between 
and some difference between like healthy patients and whatever the disease in question was, right? Even something like schizophrenia or something mm -hmm. like this. Uh, so, so I, I think that that's ev kind of everywhere uh, associations, but mechanisms and causation, as you alluded to earlier, is more rare, right? And how do we get there, right? How do we get to these mechanisms? How do we get to, you know, hypotheses for us to, to, to test to see if this is indeed what's happening within this biological system? And I think that's why we have expanded. This is, this is and it's not even us. It's more, more people approaching us, right, and saying, look it, I have these stool samples or I have these serum samples from, you know, patients who had diabetes. I think this is the last person I talked to. They said, you know, can we look at the stool, you know, metaproteome because we looked at the 16S and there seems to be some compositional difference between those children that had diabetes versus the children that didn't. So can you get us a little closer to the mechanism by applying your proteomics platform, your stool uh, proteomic platform to this specific question? And I think it's a good time. You know, I tell my students it's a great time to be, you know, a proteomics person, right? Uh, uh, in particular, when it comes to like microbiome, because there's so many different questions, there's so many different experiments that need to be done, and and there really isn't enough hands. You know, we can easily have like a six-month queue on on our instrument because there's so there's such a high demand, you know, for its use. So yeah, no, I I, I foresee this not stopping. I, I I actually foresee this, you know expanding out and this is why I'm actually looking to get a second a second instrument because I think not only do we have the tools to help other labs and but I think it like it goes back to the notion what I spoke about earlier is that I think that we really genuinely want to help that's just so important right like I, we, we, we've been talking about this there's a science part and there's a professional kind of colleague relationship part right and I think that we not only have the technology to do it, but I think people quickly realize that we want to help. Like we genuinely want to help. We're not a, you know, money first, break the bank type of, you know, center or like lab. We genuinely put science first, the scientific question first and advancing science first. And I think that's the name of my center that I have is called the Collaborative Center for Multiplex Proteomics. And I wanted to make sure that I put that word there, collaborative, for people to understand that I'm here to, to try to help you in any way I can as a collaborator to push your science forward. Will the experiment work? We don't know, but we will give it a genuine shot. And what we provide you at the tail end is gonna be something that is interpretable something that, that, that's going to be, you know, useful to you. And we provide, you know, consultation after for like the whole group because we do see it as a collaboration. And we feel the more that our collaborators know, the more they're well-informed, the easier, you know, in the data isn't to interpret, then the whole project as a whole will move forward. It has a, has a better chance to move forward. Yeah. Sounds very exciting. What would you say your your goals are for yourself and for your lab maybe the next 10 20 years well hopefully to be alive still <laughs> <laughs> um so so going back to that concept of the golden hammer and, and and going back to that concept of probing the proteome directly we have a lot of really cool projects going on in the lab with high value for being translatable and 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 the reason why i say that is because i would say 
most people, like if you asked about my lab on campus, and if you heard about it, you're going to hear proteomics. That's probably what you're going to, I would say more often than that, people would say, yeah, you know, this guy does proteomics. But I would say those that are in the lab, will, you really find out real quick that we kind of do proteomics. I would say we're like a microbiology lab in disguise. So I would say, like, if you ask me, David, what are the main projects in your lab right now? I would say we have a vaccine. So we have a protein antigen from strep, streptococcus pyogenes. It's a causative agent of strep throat that we feel is a high-value player in this, in this field that has potential to be a potentially leading protein antigen. There is no vaccine for strep, streptococcus pyogenes, for strep throat. We think we at least have a very high-value player that can potentially be, you know, maybe a leading antigen in that field. The cool thing is about that protein, it's homologous and other streptococcus. So right now we're vaccinating horses in Texas. So streptococcus equi is one of the leading causes of like strangles. For, oh, it is a leading cause of strangles for horses. Strangles being? So, so within the, the, the kind of nasal pathways, or like they have these kind of patches here and like in their like kind of the throat, it gets consumed with like mucus, like sputinum and the bacteria itself and they can't breathe. Mm. They get strangled, right? Okay. They, they start, to, they can't breathe. So the bacteria that does that, that causes strangle in horses is streptococcus equi and it has a homolog of this protein that we're studying for streptococcus pyogenes. So now we said, wow, this conservation, the homology is pretty high at the protein level. So right now we're vaccinating horses to see if, you know, once we challenge them, if they become, you know, um, I guess immune against strep equi and they don't develop strangles. That's one. So that's probably the biggest project in the lab right now is going after a streptococcus vaccine. And that's all, there's nothing with proteomics there. Right. It's all, you know, challenging mice, um, you know, challenging horses. And it's really looking at that and seeing if we can protect and, and against, you know, these streptococcus, different streptococcus strains. So there's actually a homolog in fish. There's a homolog in group B strep, which is the number one cause of baby meningitis, which we're going after too. So that's kind of the, one of the top, top projects in the lab. Um, the other, I would say something else that we're going after, proteases. So we already did all the omics, right? So we, we just have a new R01 on looking at gut disease and proteolysis for the microbiome. So microbiome-derived proteases and gut disease. So there really isn't any mass spec that was, or proteomics that was proposed. It's all about going in and doing, you know, taking what we learned from the big omics study, going in and knocking out those proteases. So really building a system where we can test hypotheses, where we have like the wild type bacterial vulgatus, we have the knockout of the protease, and then we can repeat some of our in vitro and in vivo assays to see if, you know, gain more direct evidence that the proteases are the ones that are, you know, responsible for that phenotype. So that's probably the second biggest project in the lab. And then I would say the third uh, project, does, then, then it comes down to more like proteomics and saying like, can we develop tools? Can we push the boundaries of like, right now it's huge, it's stool proteomics. So I have a couple students that are really digging into, because it is, it is, I would say it is a novelty still. I mean, people have done prote stool proteomics since like two, I think 2010. So someone might argue and say it's not a novelty. It's been like a decade old already. But the way that we are doing it and the way that we're digging into it is a much more, I would say, comprehensive than what other people have done. Like we're looking at food. Like, so if you go into stool and if, if you look at stool as a biomass, super complex, super complex. 
it's not like a primary cell line where you would expect okay proteins right you're going to get proteins out of the mass out of the proteomics um just proteins from 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 the cell if you go into stool you got to consider okay well there's host proteins in there human um there's food proteins in there there's microbial like bacterial proteins in there there's viral proteins in there right um you know fungus i mean so in a matrix that's super complex like that a lot of technical problems can happen uh some of my students are looking at like well what are the what about if you have a peptide that matches food but that identical peptide's found in humans so where does that peptide go where does that quantitative value get assigned to right there's like a lot of things like that what type of database do you use do you use people just typically if they did stool they'll only search against the human database you know that's there's a lot more going on in there right or if they at most they will take the human database and they'll concatenate it with like a mic microbe database but still you're still missing the food right and you're still missing uh, you know other things that are in there right so 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 i say you know in terms of my lab you might hear proteomics first because you know we're we are great at proteomics we, we do have a powerful platform and we are experts at it but i would say we only use that as a means to get to a hypothesis but at the same time we want to help others do the same for their lab that's why we spread out but the majority of the time students are in the lab you know testing hypotheses doing biology and you know failing in experiments that you know that that's the way it is biology is very unpredictable right mm -hmm. you know you wake up one day the center like i I, <laughs> I remember like i used to spin this blood in the centrifuge it would for some reason it would like work one day and the next day i came and it would like lice the blood cells and i, I was like I was trying to take the temperature of my hands or like my hands too warm or what what happened here right so i mean biology is biology is very a lot of variability but um yeah no i guess to answer your question that's um that's kind of what we're doing in the lab awesome do you have any habits anything that you do on a daily basis that you think has been critical for your success so i go to sleep every day at 10 o'clock Every day. Every day. Every day at 10 o'clock, not 10.01, not 10.02. I'm in bed by 10. Uh, my wife always says, like, <laughs> she's like, you don't have to clock in. Why do you sleep at? So I just have gotten into the trend. I sleep at 10 o'clock. And then I'm, I'm awake probably, I would say, 4.30 to 5 every day. I, just, I don't need an alarm clock. I, I just wake up at that time. So I'm up about 4.30 or 5. I get ready. I jump in my car. I, I live in North County, so I live up in Vista. And so it's about a 40-minute drive into work. And, you know, that has been, I think, a secret. The commute. A commute. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because it gives me time to, th like, I think the project, every project that we've talked about today, I've conceptualized on my way down here. I think about it. And I, I, I think it gives me time to really think about my projects, you know, to kind of, you know, kind of get away from, you know, anybody else talking so i see a lot of value in my my commute um uh, you know there is disadvantages i'm a little kind of far away from ucsd type of deal but at least i think it's given me time to really like think deeply i have to sometimes pull over and text my students because if i have an idea i don't want to forget it and i just text them real fast and they i give them like a little header email with like two words and they come in all confused like well what does this mean and then i tell them what it means right <laughs> but um but but i think yeah so my typical day is like sleep at 10 for sure even on the, you know, well, unless I go to a party or something, but even on the weekends, I'll, I'll, I'll be in bed by 10, wake up about five, come to work. And I like coming to work early. I've always seen a lot of value in that because 
there's something about writing in the morning. So this is what I, what 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 I think most of my writing has 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 gotten done, is I come in and I write. I just write, listen to my opera or listen to my classical music, and I and I write. So I do a lot of writing in the morning, and then after I write in the morning, I kind of you know I've already f kind of got to know myself in terms of what my limits are. So I would say about five hours of writing. I'm, I cannot think anymore. Like I'm, my mind literally feels like goo and I, I'm like a little like zonked out and I know people talk to me and I'm like, my eyes are like really big and I don't even know what people are saying, but a good, a good five hours of writing in every morning is, I, I think has been super like, you know, beneficial to me, but also, you know, it, 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 it really wears, wears you. Right. So like I'm now, now I'm like around 11 o'clock, like before lunch or something, I'm pretty much done. Like I'm pretty tired. Like my mind, mentally, I'm still here physically, right? But mentally, I'm I'm pretty tired. I'm pretty checked out. Like after five hours of writing, so I do that a lot. So I I would say I write a lot. Grants, grant every grants, um, you know papers. Like we publish a lot of papers at the lab, so we're writing a lot of papers, writing a lot of grants, um, you know, yeah. So 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 then I would do that. Then I go home. Like you know, I I used to stay here. So when I started my job, I would stay here, even though I got home like really early, I would stay here for like three or four, maybe like four, uh, you know, I would stay here. And I, cause I felt like I, you know, I needed to be here. I, I have this thing, like, I feel like it's not that I don't like, I don't micromanage people. Right. But I feel like I want to be a leader of example. I've always felt that way. Like I need to lead by example. Right. I will be here. I will come and I'll work and I'll, you know, do what I need to do, but lead by example. That's kind of like moving away from me a little bit. Not not that I don't feel like it's important, but I, but I feel like, um, you know, no matter, even if I'm here or I'm not here, I think things are going to get done still, right? Uh, but I still try to make it as much as I can to, to work. Um, I, I'm I would say I'm here on average like, like Monday through Thursday, um, you know, pretty much all day, right? Um, but what, what has been the secret? My secret to success, I would say, has been, you know, that sense of urgency. I still feel like, I think it wasn't until my first R01 where I felt like I belonged. I know that's hard to, you know, what I, what I, like, I, honest to God, I didn't, I still felt like I shouldn't be here it's, they call this for colored people, the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I still felt that imposter syndrome until my first R01. When I got my first R01, it went away a little bit. But I really didn't feel like, one, I belonged here in terms of, like, worthiness. Um, maybe I, I felt like I wasn't at the level of a professor until I got my first R01. And it's still, I wouldn't say 100% it went away. But I would say I f do feel much better right um i'm on to like my 14th grant now right and right now we're, we're flying pretty high right now in terms of funding um but i still carried even through the phd through the postdoc through the first four years of my professorship i still felt that monkey on my shoulder about that i wouldn't i should i didn't belong here and even though i was on this campus since 2006 it sounds crazy, but it was something on me saying, wow, you know, maybe you aren't good enough. Maybe you shouldn't be here. And when I got that first R01, it was like, okay, I can breathe. 
Wow, a little bit at least, right? So you've been able to feel a little bit more at peace but still retain the sense of urgency? Yeah, and I still feel like, you know, I still feel this urgency that I love everybody. Like, every, like it goes back, when I say, I, everybody in my lab, I love deep. So if people want to know what type of mentor I am, I can tell you, I, I love very deep. I, 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 if I accept someone into my lab, it's like almost accepting them into my family. And I want to help that person. Like I, I almost fixate and I, I get obsessed with how can I help this person? How can I help them get to, to wherever they are? So I haven't lost that. I, that, that still drives me, right? That still drives my, 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 you know, that sense of urgency, that passion to help, to support. Um, I'm a father too. I don't know if it comes from that, um, but, but I still feel the passion I still feel the love for everybody in my lab, every single individual in my lab. You know, even though we've had our ups and downs, some of us, I still feel in my heart that I want to help them. I want to help them get where they want to be. So I, st I still have the fire. I still have the passion. And that's kind of where part of it comes from. But the other part is also the science. You know, I, I, I still love what I do. I still feel like there's many things to be like discovered. In the, in, the, in the space of microbes, you know, if you think about their genomes and their proteomes and things of this nature, I mean, we're not even, we're probably like halfway there. Maybe, I would say maybe like, you know, maybe a third there of understanding even one single microbe, right? Because if you look in you, like their genomes and then like you look at their open reading frames, the majority of the proteins, well, I would say like, you know, maybe a little bit less than half are, are um, of unknown function. We have no idea what they even do. So there's still like a lot of intellectual kind of things that like get me kind of excited. Um, you know, this whole space that we're going into the microbiome, that's kind of really cool and exciting. So that really still energizes me. Um, you know, this whole vaccine thing that we're doing is really cool. So so I still have a love and a, and a burning passion for the science. That's what drives me. But at the same time, I still want to make sure that I come in and that I'm making sure that my students and people that are working under me are, are progressing in a way that not only, like I said, good scientists, but they're also good people. Yeah, that, 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 that's really important to me. I have two more questions for you. No problem. What do you do when you get stuck or when you're experiencing difficulty? How do you work through it? In terms of the job, like me, myself, personally? Yeah. So I've never felt that way. Until this is a funny question because I've never felt that way ever until maybe two months ago. Mm. And the last seven years I've like driving up this hill. I mean, I come up here like with just glee. I mean, I'm just jumping out of my, I'm so excited. So like appreciative of driving onto this campus, even though I've been here since 2006. I drive up this campus every morning. The same thing this morning, too. I come up here and I just, you know, thank God every morning that I'm allowed to be here, that I'm here, um, you know, just you know, this is such a blessing and wonderful job. This is how I feel when I drive on, onto this campus, just 100% blessed that I'm actually able to do this. So I drive up here and beautiful. Two months ago, <laughs> two months ago was probably the first time that I felt just drained and 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 this was my fault 100 percent my fault as a professor i think you always hear this 
notion about learning how to say no, that's hard for me. It's been hard for me to say no. And in June of 2022, just a few months ago, I wrote an S10, that's like a 120, 30 page grant. Uh, I did study section for the NIH. I had to review like nine to 10 applications, become an expert at something you really aren't an expert at, right? And, re and you know, review them and talk about them. I also took on uh, a couple more responsibilities and then, I, you know, new, new students in the lab. And last June, I felt like done. Like I felt like I had no energy, no enthusiasm. I got sick, right, at the same time. And, you know, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to respond, to be honest with you, because it was the first time that I've ever felt like that. The way I did respond, which was I said, you know what? I'm finally going to take a vacation. I had not taken a vacation in seven years. Well, I'll be honest with you. I haven't taken a vacation since grad school. One, because in grad school I had no money, right? Uh, two, postdoc, I was just trying to get out of there. I did a two-year post, two and a half-year postdoc. I was trying to publish like 10 papers or something. So I was just working, right? Started my job here. Was scared. Was I had fear, the imposter syndrome. I was scared to take a vacation because I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to get fired or something, you know, just thinking crazy things like that. But finally in June, when I, when my, my brain got a really, I felt tired. I took a vacation last, last month in July and it was awesome. I tell people when they came, when I came back from lab, I took actually a three week, three week vacation. So I took three weeks off, went up to Malibu area, had a great time up there uh, with the family, hurt my ankle at a family oh, reunion. Yeah. <laughs> We were playing flag football. I hurt my ankle. So I was on the couch for another week. Watched, I think, every single show on TV. I don't watch TV that much, but I watched every single show on Netflix, I think. I finally got to watch um, Squid Games, which was super cool. Mm, yes. <laughs> and I started watching, uh, what's this, the one with the little kids on their bicycles? Stranger, Stranger Things. Things yeah. yeah. So started watched a lot of TV. And then the third week of my vacation, I slept a lot. I never, I can't remember sleeping that much where I started dreaming again. So I haven't dreamt for years, Kellen. And then <laughs> that third week I was dreaming so many dreams. And now when I came back after those three weeks, I felt energized again, I feel good again. I just think that I took on too much in June. I took on way too much. And I really almost got to the point where, uh, you know, I almost broke. And I think it's not good. It's not good. It's actually, that was good for my students because now I can, s you know, when they come and say, hey, I'm leaving on vacation, the first thing I think about is their well-being me personally experiencing that like a real almost break of just taking on way too much four years in the phd let's say three years in my postdoc and then another so 14 years of just trucking forward bulldozing forward every day waking up with a mission to come and do great science and be successful at ucsd 14 years i did that and finally in june 2022 my brain got tired and Maybe that was a good thing because now it allows me to be more sympathetic towards other people, right? And, you know, others, you know, particularly students who say, hey, I need a break, David, right? And now I'll sit back and say, wow, you know what? I, I am more concerned about their well-being and I want them to be happy and healthy, <laughs> right? And come do great science. And, 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 and that's kind of um, what happened this year, which, which was interesting. Did you intentionally not think about science or lab at all during that time i tried to as much as i could uh and i actually did pretty good i i 
put my my computer away. I didn't touch it that much. My phone, that's the one that's always a little bit more difficult because you're, you know. It's right I've, there. Yeah, and, and you know, everything's dependent on your phone these days, right? Like, I remember I just got back from Utah. I couldn't even get on the Wi-Fi because I didn't have a phone. I forgot my phone in the, in the hotel. So you have to do this, like, secondary thing to get a code to get on the Wi-Fi. I'm like, you know, so every you need your phone for everything these days pretty much, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, 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 I, 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 I would say, yes, for the most part, I would say 90%, 95% of the time I was completely disconnected. And, you know, luckily I had good people, I have, I have good people in the lab who can, you know, take care of it and I trust them to take care of it and move it forward. And there, there was no, no issues. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was something that I needed and now I'm already thinking like, wow, I need to do that again. <laughs> I should probably do it myself. Yeah. Okay. Last question is, do you believe that luck or hard work and skill have contributed more to your success? So I would say if you would have asked me this a few years ago, I gave a talk and someone asked me this question. They got up and they said, how did you do it? And I, honest to God, said, I feel that God had a plan for me. I don't feel like I've done anything. I feel like I'm like in this car that's taking me through this kind of journey. And I feel, and the, the people weren't satisfied that day when I gave them that answer. I said, it was fate. I said, fate. It's fate. Because I feel like I'm, I've been here, but everything that's happening in my life it just seems too much of a coincidence in terms of getting to this spot here. Um, too much of a coincidence where things have just kind of fell together perfectly. I, you know, the grad students that I recruited kind of just, you know, like, you know, one grad student was sitting here. One of my better grad students was just sitting at the coffee cart here. And, and I would walk by every day and, you know, I didn't even know them. And, and, and one day I just said, hey, how's it going? And then they started talking about, you know, how they were in a rotation and how they hated the rotation. It wasn't the best rotation. And they came here to study cancer. And I was like, hey, look, it, you can come to my lab for a few weeks. You know, I'll, you'll get to know the, the platform. Some of the biggest players in the cancer field are using this platform. And then you can go to a cancer lab. That person came and never left, right? So now, and, and they were instrumental to where we're at in terms of the vaccine today terms of all discovery so i so to answer your question i really feel that that i was this is a gift that has been given to me and i truly appreciate that gift and that's why i become i get i come you should see me like at 6 30 in the morning when i get to lab you probably think i had like 10 cups of coffee i'm just like jazz but it's, it's love it's love and happiness and you know that that ability of just being here and the appreciation of being here and i really feel that it was already written. That's my answer. It's already written before I got here. So I think it's already written. This path has already kind of been predisposed for me. How and why? I have no idea. Um, but I, that's, that's what I really feel. I think that's a great note to end on. Cool. Awesome. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you so much for doing this. Yeah, no, appreciate it.